Alive and Kicking on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, clinical hypnotherapist Fiona Brennan is back with therapy from the couch. And this week, she's giving advice to a listener who is feeling like their body has let them down after a diagnosis. Erica Drum has some comforting recipes for the new season and we celebrate the neurodiverse and discuss the job market headhunting, seeing neurodiversity traits as a positive. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, it was a big week out where I live as a member of the community died. Now, I won't go into specifics as it's not my story to tell. And to be honest, I can't say I knew him very well. I didn't have his number in my phone, for example, but he was somebody I have known since I started socialising as a teenager and was just always there. And You definitely know people like this. You'd meet him in the village, down on the beach, in the pub, wave as you drove by, always friendly, always time for a chat and a bit of a check in. And the reason I mention it like that is because we take these faces for granted, these people for granted. Our lives were interwoven in a small community. Some of my friends knew him better than me, but I would still have called him a friend, someone I liked and would always leave you with a smile on your face. And you often hear of a small town mentality and it's talked about like it's a bad thing, everybody knowing everybody's business. And I know there can be times in life where gossip is toxic and the people at the centre of that gossip are so much more than just a story to be discussed over a cuppa. But since I moved back to the village I grew up in two years ago, I've actually really loved that community feeling. Chats with people you've known all your life as you pop in for bread and milk, your kids hanging out with kids of your friends and the whole cycle begins again. And the community really came together to feel the loss of our friend this week. There were faces outside that church that I haven't seen for years. And this time, instead of coming together for a bit of crack in the local pub, It was there with sadness to say goodbye, but that small town mentality came together with great strength. And look, of course, there was crack in the pub later. And I just mention it so we're all reminded to keep those faces who are part of the fabric of where you live close to your heart and to remember the value of a tight knit community. I was really sorry that there was a sad reason for mine to come together this week, but I was also very proud to be part of it. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, the season has changed. We are definitely fully into autumn and cook Erica Drum is here to give us some cosy recipes. Erica, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Do you like this season? I do. I have to say, I love the change of seasons at any time of the year because it just really, you know, it, it, the change of the food, the change of our clothes, it kind of gives us a fresh start every time, right? Yeah. And I love the leaves changing, mm. all the pumpkins around. And you're going to talk about them. Let's start with Halloween, which is coming this week. Yes. We can't just carve the pumpkins we can also eat them which is news to me yeah absolutely so we're right in the depths of it today and this weekend um, we'll see them all over did you know that we actually have we buy or consume 2.2 million pumpkins in Ireland over the few days of, of Halloween or the few weeks I suppose in or around and majority of it goes to waste two thirds all of them are edible right all, all these pumpkins the bigger ones particularly are all edible but they're not necessarily made to be eaten. So therefore, they're not um, as pumpkin flavour, as butternut squashy flavour, as strong in flavour. But they're still perfectly edible and delicious. So 
biggest recommendation would be maybe it's too late this year, but perhaps next year, instead of um, carving, maybe we could draw our, our um, faces onto our pumpkins. Why not wash it off or peel that bit off when you're going to cook them? But um, there's a, an amazing Instagram page called Ode to Earth. And they talk about just rinsing your carved pumpkin in water with a little bit of vinegar in it. So once you've carved it or the kids have carved it, just dip it in a little bit of water that you've put vinegar in. And keep your pumpkin, even with the lantern in it, in somewhere that's not too cold but not too hot. So kind of like, you know, the porch or whatever should be fine or inside the front door at the window or whatever. And then all of this gets cooked. And I can use, I leave the skin on and everything, roast straight into the oven. Okay, wow. Because yeah. I was thinking about what you scoop out. I mean, obviously you, you discard the seeds and the stringy bit, but that flesh that you carve out, yes. can something be done with that? Because I know in America you can buy tinned pumpkin puree and I just thought it was from a different root vegetable. I mean, why did I think that? They're both called pumpkins, Claire. <laughs> it's all the same. The flesh that you put, so when you take out the seeds, they're actually totally edible as well, Claire. That There's a little bit more work to them. I feel you have to boil them before you roast them, but you can eat them like pumpkin seeds also from the same thing. So that's what pumpkin seeds that we buy in the packet are coming from. There's just a little bit more work to them. You boil them and then roast them. Okay. Um, when it comes to the flesh on the inside, the one that's in a can, let's say the American one that we know well, is that flesh but cooked. So that's all that it is. It can be boiled or roasted or even these days air fried, I'd say. Okay. So you're suggesting just like chopping them up Scooping out the stuff, yeah. boiling and roasting the yeah, seeds yeah. and then just chopping them. And what would you drizzle over that if for flavour? Okay, so the seeds can be a separate thing. But if you if you are up for doing this, pumpkin, I always say flavour friends, right? Pumpkin has loads of flavour friends. Think coconut and chilli. That was gorgeous soup. I actually have a recipe I'll pop up. Um cumin, coriander, uh, obviously garlic, it's really friends with as well. Olive oil, even just simple olive oil, salt, pepper into the oven or into the air fryer, like I said, and um, blend it with some fried onion and butter. And you've got yourself soup if you had stock in there. Like it's really, really simple. Um, orange as well. Loves a little bit of orange rind or something in it. Um, some sage. I've just recently done a butternut squash recipe. So anywhere you see butternut squash recipes, you can replace with pumpkin. So they're all the same family. Actually, courgettes are from the same family, but they're the summer version. Um, they're all from the same family. So if you see a butternut squash recipe, you can replace it with the pumpkins that you have. Try not to throw them in the bin. They don't need to go in the bin. So yeah, I've recently done a really gorgeous creamy butternut squash pasta. I use mascarpone, topped it with some hazelnuts and um, crispy sage and blue cheese. Savage. Yum. <laughs> yeah, really was. So it's root vegetables are in season now. Yes, I've got things like um, celeriac. Do you know celeriac? Yeah, I'm I like I'm not a huge fan of celeriac, I'd have to say, but I'm not a huge fan of celery. Okay, so that that's probably fair. That's totally fair enough, obviously. So celeriac is the celery, the root version of the celery. So it is um, celery flavour, I suppose, but a, a denser texture, like a potato or a turnip or a parsnip, a turnip more so. Um, I love it. Now, again, it's something that loves cream and dairy products add to it. So if you were to do it in, um, you could do it whole, like um, Otto Lenghi does a really nice whole roast celeriac to kind of replace, like for you, Claire, being vegetarian, replace the meat, you know, that might be on a Sunday roast or something. But I love it um, roasted in cubes or or turned into a really nice puree with um, cream, butter. Uh, yeah, I know. What's bold. not to love? Yeah, I think I might like that one. Yeah, you got to try that one. <laughs> Check out Otto Lange's recipe for baked celeriac as well. It's really nice. He does it with the Café de Paris um, sauce, which is fantastic with it because it has a little bit of acidity. Um, so it works really well. Um, I always find in the change of a season, we start to crave 
different foods like that salad crispness that we crave yeah. over the summer months that seems to change we're looking for more warming comforting dishes even though the temperatures haven't even dropped that much yet. Yeah, they haven't quite. And actually one of the recipes I wanted to talk to you about today was the a mushroom yuksung because mushrooms are in at the moment and we can, and we can get lots of them um, a lot of the months of the year but I really like eating them at this time of year because they're, they're probably at their peak. Yeah, because um, I mean I got Irish mushrooms there last week and they tasted delicious and that's when you get the difference. That's when you know they're in season. 100%. And mushrooms are brilliant in a kind of warming, you know, you could put them in a pasta dish or whatever but I love this yuksung dish especially at this time where we're not quite frozen, you know, we're still a little bit warm. So yuksung where you fry up the mushrooms with chilli and that when you add in a bit of heat to the uh, to something you're cooking in the colder months, it also seems to warm us up as well, you mm. know, that kind of way. So yeah, they're like little um, lettuce cups. So you can still get like things like, you can get all this, you can get everything all year round these days, obviously, but things like baby jam and stuff are still, are still being grown um, in Ireland. And so little lettuce cups you make the little um, casing out of a baby gem or maybe a romaine or something cut in half and you fill it with fried mushroom. I have a recipe that I'm going to pin for you on my Instagram that's mushroom and pork but you don't have to, you know, take out the pork, double up the mushroom or if you wanted some turkey mince or chicken mince or corn or whatever you use in there. Spices, a little bit of spices and then chilli and garlic obviously ginger it's really good and often you look at those sort of dinners and you think that's not going to fill me that's not going to be enough filling up lettuce cups but it would surprise you yeah absolutely and I love adding a little bit of peanut um, so chopped peanuts on the top as well so once you've got fats your proteins your carbs in there you it, it does totally surprise you and you, you know you feel really good after as well even though you're you're full you still feel really good yeah and it's a good sharing plate if you have people coming around it looks impressive because yeah, you only does. ever really see it in the Chinese so yeah. you throw it out on the table and impress your friends. Yeah, so absolutely. your little girl, is she going to be going trick-or-treating oh, this year? Oh, great question. Um, we're trying to, we're trying to keep her away from not know what sweets are yet because <laughs> she's only 15 months and I am definitely addicted. So I'd say she'll get that too. Um, we, we might do, yeah. We have a little skeleton outfit for her. So cute. My daughter, like, she's 10. She said to me only uh, this morning, Mom, Halloween is like the only time where mom and dad's let us take sweets from strangers, isn't it? I was like, <laughs> yes, it kind of is. <laughs> Either, but we're with you. We're always with you. And I remember when mine were toddlers, you take them trick or treating and they just walk into the house. They don't oh, know you're wow. to stand at the front door. The minute the front door opens, they just start heading in. You're like, no, no, we're just standing at the door until these Strangers give us sweets, but however. <laughs> I literally tell you all year round not to talk to strangers and then now we're going to eat what And never take sweets yeah, off them. Yeah. But now we can. But look, it's all in the name of, of yeah. fancy dress and fun. I, I love Halloween. It's great fun. As ever, Erica, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, Fiona Brennan is a clinical hypnotherapist and for the last couple of months, she's been coming in to give us therapy from the couch and answer your emails. Um, If you have anything going on in your life that you would like us to get some advice for you on, it is always open anonymously, alive and kicking at newstalk.com. Fiona, you are very welcome back. Thanks, Claire. I'm so happy to be here with the two of you. Absolutely brilliant. And it's working out well because we're talking about self-compassion in answer to an email, which I'll read out in a moment. And that's your new course. 
That's right, Claire. Yeah, it's starting online on Monday, November 13th. And you can join. And basically, if you can't make it live, you can watch the recording. So it's it's really based on the teachings of Kristen Neff and Paul Gilbert, who are experts in the field of compassion. So I'm really looking forward to that because it's something that we we all need. It's actually like a skill we need to learn, like learning to drive or, you know, I don't know, being an accountant or, you know, that it's a, it is a training that you can actually learn. And that just gives so much hope, I think, for people who are hard on themselves, which is incredibly common for people to be really self-critical. And, you know, it's at the heart of my work is helping people to turn that around to go from a place of being harsh to to being heartful, to being kind, to being um, really considerate to oneself as one would be to anyone else, to a friend, to a loved one. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned driving there because when you're first learning how to drive, it takes all of your energy. And I remember being so shocked that it was so much more complicated than a bumper car. I thought it was just like, you know, press on, go and this clutch and all this carry on that I just think of as well as all the road around me. Um, I thought I'd never be able to relax in the car. I thought I'd never listen to music. I thought I'd never be able to talk to a friend. I was just panicked. And then the more you do it, the more you do it now, you know, you get in and you pull into your driveway and you can't really remember thinking before you got there, which is dangerous. But that'll just show you it goes into your subconscious. So it's the same with this. The more we do something, the more it gets knitted into who we are. And that's what you're going to tell people. And it's really going to ring true for this person who contacted the show. Again, that email address is aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. So she says, I have recently been diagnosed with prolapse and it's been the worst news ever. I feel like my normal life is over. I've stopped going to the gym. I don't do big, long hill walks anymore. I do Kegels, but I'm so scared. I mean, gravity will win eventually. I'm so scared. I'm single, 61 years old, would definitely not welcome a sexual relationship or sex at all. How has my body let me down? Why aren't we told about prolapse? I read one in five women have it. I'm convinced I got it from coughing in COVID, but maybe that just exacerbated it. I'm always hands on lifting furniture, lifting kids, heavy shopping. Any of this could have caused it. The waiting list for surgery is over 18 months. I'm so sad. It's very restricting. My self-diagnosis is a grade two. It feels terrible. There's absolutely no help or info about this. I'm active, not overweight and healthy. There are Facebook groups, but there's a lot of scary stories from other sufferers, mind boggling symptoms and surgeries. I'd love you to talk about this. I've told nobody. Only my doctor knows I'm going through this and she never mentions it unless I bring it up. It's a very taboo subject. Sorry for the long email. I'm just so sad I did this to myself. Thank you. And there's so much in this, isn't there, Fiona? Um... And this being a health and wellness program, like we're we're happy to cover anything that's affecting your day to day living. But it's really interesting that this one is a health issue. Absolutely. And it's such a really good example of someone being hard on themselves. So, again, I see it so often in my clinical experience and usually when someone presents in this way, I would be really looking at acceptance as the first port of call. However, with this listener, what comes across is just how harsh she is being to herself. So we've got to start actually with self-compassion and to take the pressure off herself. You know, she says things like um, that 
I'm so sad I did this to myself. And that is like, you know, it's such a hard, it's it's already a hard place to be. And then adding that to it just really compounds it. So I want to share some really good, you know, methods that, that can help her. Um, I, I do notice that one thing is that, that she seems to be someone who has enjoyed good health most of her life. That's the impression I get when you read between the lines and you always have to read between the lines in these uh, type of scenarios. And it seems like she's so disappointed that her body has let her down. And I think that, you know, one of the things that's a mindset that's very, very helpful is to actually, when we look at our bodies, is to say, well, hang on a moment, right? When were we ever told that they're going to work perfectly? Whoever told us that, right? Because it's such an intricate web of things that are going on. Now, I'm not a biologist or a physiologist, but, you know, from what I do know, it's like there's just so many different systems in place and they all have to work together. So it's just going to be part of the human condition that we are going to meet um, bumps along the road. Some of those can be way more extreme than others. But the, the, the reality is that when we get into this place of acceptance towards our bodies and working with them when they are in some form of a chronic health condition, then that actually alleviates a lot of the pressure around it because the expectation starts to shift and we start to work with what we have as opposed to what we wish that we had. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of guilt and shame around illness and I just don't think there's any place there. I've heard it a lot Now, prolapse has nothing to do with cancer, but just while we're on the topic of diagnosis, there was a psychiatrist who came on the show who works with the Irish Cancer Society and he said a lot of people sit in front of him and say, did I get this because I can't process my emotions correctly? Rather than looking at it as something physical that just occurred and now they have to deal with it, they're looking for reasons to blame themselves. Likewise, I have a, a friend who recovered from breast cancer and when she went back to work, she felt if she was eating a biscuit at the tea break, that people might be judging her that she wasn't choosing vegetables and a healthier life. And we put all of this pressure yeah. on ourselves while we're already going through something, like you've said. Absolutely. And it's only going to compound it, isn't it? And it's it's just awful to see, as you say, people blaming themselves because it's, it's so like like I say, part of being human. We're all privy to um, different illnesses and weaknesses and conditions. So it's it's taking that on board and, and bringing, a, one of the, the main components of compassion is bringing that sense of universal, um, uh, that it's a collective thing that we can all really, uh, it applies to all of us. So what is your advice here? Now, I do have some medical advice from a pelvic health physio that I'll touch on in a moment and that I'm going to send to this listener. But we're talking more from a mindset point of view because even following exercises or medical advice, mindset is going to be very much part of handling this, isn't it? Yeah, really, absolutely is. It always is so helpful. So the first thing I've said is is self-compassion uh, is is the first step. Then moving into a place of acceptance that this is the reality of what this poor lady is dealing with. It's far from ideal, but it is what has presented in her body. Um, so, you know, I want to share a parable, a, a Buddhist philosophy um, story that is actually really, really helpful. And I, I live my own life by this. And it's it's incredibly helpful when we are met with challenges. And let's face it, we, you know, they, they arise for all of us at different stages in our lives. And a full disclaimer, like, you know, I would never offer 
counsel or advice to anyone without actually practicing it myself because I, I just don't I think that's unethical in terms of being able to say well you need to do this or without really having gone through that process myself. So I do live with two chronic health conditions and I can stand over it and say that this is something that has really really helped me, helped a lot of my clients and I would say that these conditions that I have literally probably get 5% of my airtime. So I'm living my life as fully and health as I, you know, in with as much energy and, and vitality as I can. And um, so basically this, this the story is it's an empowering parable to to live by and it is from Buddhist philosophy. And it's known as the two arrows. Now some people may have heard of this, but essentially if you can imagine if you're li- when you're listening to this close your eyes and imagine an arrow, okay? And imagine that this arrow represents a difficulty in your life at the moment. So for this listener, that arrow is the prolapse that has literally been thrown at her, okay? It's not her fault. Absolutely no way is she to blame herself, but it is there. It is an arrow. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, it is a big deal. We're not trying to diminish that by saying, go easy on yourself. Like this is something that when she wakes up in the morning, she's thinking of, it could be waking her at night. Like this is a constant. So yes, we are validating that. 100% 100% and that's where the compassion comes in. It's it's recognising it, it's acknowledging it, it's saying this is not easy to live with, right? And then that is the truth. Um, but if you stay with that image of the first arrow and now what we've got to bring in is a second arrow, okay? And in Buddhist philosophy, what they say is that the, the first arrow is, as we say, the condition and the second arrow represents our reaction to that challenge, So this is where we can empower ourselves to choose a response that is self-compassionate, that is where we're really looking at the thought process, the mindset around the condition. And acceptance is the key because when we stay with the first arrow, right, rather than the second, the third, the fourth, and in this listener's emails, we see there's so many arrows that she unfortunately is throwing at herself, Right. And again, not her fault, but the recognition and the awareness of that is something that is very, very liberating because now you are, this lady is in a position to actually do something about it. We move into a place of yang compassion, which is very much about proactivity, about seeking help, about looking at what what can be done while she's waiting for surgery to be able to say, what are the really practical things that I can do here? And once we start taking action, we, we do feel better, don't we? We feel much more like, OK, I'm, I'm, I'm an, I have agency over this. It's when we feel powerless. It's when we feel hopeless. It's when we feel so kind of that there's no way out that we can go into really dark places of depression and anxiety. So when you look at it with this perspective, it starts to to alleviate the unnecessary suffering. It is not to say that the suffering isn't there. But in Buddhist philosophy, again, they say that um, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Okay, so the pain is there. That's the first arrow. And then the second arrow is the suffering that comes from it. So staying with the pain, breathing into the pain, using mindfulness. And again, you know, I use this myself when there is pain is to actually breathe into it, work with it. And it's just incredible how it starts to soften, how everything just starts to kind of that resistance, that tension in the body um, relaxes. And all of a sudden, 
we're not dealing with two arrows, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, menopause has obviously come up on the show over the last few weeks because it was World Menopause Day. Yeah. And in Asia, where they celebrate ageing and they don't talk about the menopause in a negative connotation, they celebrate it. They have menopause parties. Yes. Um, and call it the second spring. They report less symptoms. And it's it's when you think about it, it's not that the pain has gone away, but when the pain hits and you're like, here it is again, I've done this to myself. I'm terrible because, you know, this this lady that we're reading about, she says she used to go to the gym, sounds like a real go getter. She liked long hill walks. She's dragging furniture, lifting kids, you know, up and about. Um, And now she's talking about taking herself away from all of that and being single and a relationship is now completely off the table. And I did see something pop up on Instagram recently and it was about when an animal is wounded, they will take themselves off and they will rest fully and they won't even eat. They will just wait until they heal. So is that an innate response of ours that sometimes we feel we have to retreat to get better? Is there first a bit of a first the rock bottom, then the rising? Yes, yes, it's a really good point, Claire, and it's very true. And I'm sure you'll know yourself when you you feel that you just want to retreat into yourself and it's really good instinct and it needs to be done. But what you want to make sure is that you don't stay there, right? Because it is a period of adjustment. It's like you're trying to get your whole mind around this, this big transformation in your life that you're not able to do as much as you once could. You're not as physically active as you as you could have been. You don't have that same maybe level of activity. And that's a big thing to, to, to actually process. So, yes, retreating in and, you know, giving yourself permission, like cry, journal, stay with it, close the door, be with yourself. And I think this is so, so important for anything. It's like for a woman going through a miscarriage, for infertility, for um, any of these really difficult issues that we have in our lives is we do need to retreat first. But what is so important, and again, I've seen it so many times, is that people retreat and then they come back, but they don't come back in, in quite the way that, that would one would hope. They come back with a lot of that still. They're carrying a lot of it. And what you want to do is actually start to release as you have processed. And that's why it's so important to go through that period. Would you suggest talking to somebody, maybe journaling it, getting it out of the head? How do you process it and and move on? Well, there's various ways, like I just mentioned, physically from the body, the release of tears is is really effective. Mm. We always feel better after a good cry. It might not feel good at the time, but you will feel better. Speaking to people in your life that you feel are accepting, non-judgmental, supportive. Speak to those people. If you are in a position to do so, you know, therapy, um, some professional advice, really helpful as well. But predominantly, it's about giving yourself permission. And that's the hardest part. It's like, can I sit with this? Can I just sit with it? And what happens is that the longer we allow ourselves to be with it, the less impact it has on us because we're now sort of bringing it into the fold, if you like, and we're able to to nurture that part of ourselves that is literally wounded, you know, and, and that huge transition that you've been through in your in your body. Um, and also what's really helpful is is to to look at all, all the other parts. You know, there's generally speaking, 95% of the time, there's more 
healthy with us than unhealthy. There's more ease in the body than disease. And being able to to actually get that perspective is really helpful. But again, it can only come after that period of processing. You can't jump to these places. You can't, it's like going through a bog, you know, you have to walk through it, but you do get out the other side. And I think that's what's so empowering and so hopeful. So for this lovely listener, what we want is to help her move from that state of fear. And fear is very much based in resistance. We want to help her move from fear into hope, into proactivity, into um, that yang compassion that I mentioned. You know, she said nobody knows except her doctor and it doesn't sound like her and the doctor talk about it anymore, Um, which I found strange. I often say on this show, your first port of call in health and well-being is to have a GP that you trust. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have one that you really like and trust, go again. There are incredible GPs up and down the country upskilling, particularly in the areas of, of women's health and mental health. So definitely do seek somebody else out. But I did contact Lorraine Boyce, who was a guest on the show a few weeks ago. She is the down below physio. She is based in Donegal. And she has sent me a very detailed reply that I will send on to the listener. But just to say, she said, this is very common. This happens all the time. In fact, she has seen a lot of people who got a prolapse from coughing during COVID. There is a better way to cough and there is details of that on our Instagram page and there's also an interview she did with Harley Street um, on her page as well so people can find out more information but she said surgery is not the only option there are plenty of things that can be got in the pharmacy that can help there are plenty of exercise that can be done that can make a really big difference to this lady so I will put the two of them together or it's a pelvic health physio that is needed in this instance. So Mm. that's just really positive, I think, for people to hear that there is an answer. Um, But thank you as well for reframing it, because as you say, with your course, it's a it's a it's a muscle that you flex. It's a practice. And the more you do it, the more it weaves into your life. Exactly. So I'm going to give Lorraine's um, website. It's downbelowphysio.ie and she's at downbelowphysio on Instagram. Where can people find you, Fiona? They can find me on thepositivehabit.com and also on Instagram at thepositivehabit. Fiona Brennan, thank you so much. Thank you, Claire. Alive and kicking on News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, October is Dyslexia Awareness Month, and I'm joined in studio now by teenager Lauren Rafferty, who is ambassador for Neurodiversity Ireland, and Darina Kennedy, who is one of the co-founders of Neurodiversity Ireland and also works for Google. Well, you're both very welcome. Thank you for having us. Lauren, I'm going to start with you, if I can, please. And tell me a little bit about your diagnosis aged 10. What was going on for you in school at the time? Um... I was always kind of the kid that the teachers thought were too talkative. Like I always was stood out or and I wasn't really doing the best that I could in school. So mum got a call from the educational psychologist, I think, in my school or something and said that my STEM scores were really, really low. Um, my Then my mum went into the principal of my school who we'd know for years and she said Joanne we think she's dyslexic but we can't give her a diagnosis because it's a very limited supply so then mum got in contact with an educational psychologist and in fifth class a year later I got the the diagnosis of dyslexia. And how did you feel about getting that diagnosis about getting a name for what had been perhaps going on for you in school? 
Um, I kind of didn't really think much of it. I was an 11-year-old. I was kind of more focused on my gymnastics and going to KFC with my friends on Fridays. So I kind of just thought it doesn't really define me. It's just kind of there. I don't have to do Irish, but I ended up keeping Irish on. So it's I. it didn't really affect me until really secondary school. And tell us about secondary school then, because in the BT Young Scientist, tell us about your project. Um, so I'm putting into a project into BT this year on to know or not to know. That is the question. So is it better to have a diagnosis of being neurodiverse or not? Um, you probably know I have ADHD as well, but I was up at BT because my mum is in charge of that in my school and I go up with her every year. So I was chatting to a psychologist and we were talking, is it better to have a diagnosis of being neurodiverse or not to have the diagnosis? And this really interests me. So I then started a programme with Teen Turn called Technovation and I called an app. And then after that, I kind of still had the thought of, I've coded my app was was a Tetra style to do list so to help people who were inattentive become attentive. So that was kind of my whole thing with my Tetra style to do list. So I the question was still in the back of my head like, is it better to have this diagnosis or not? So I put out surveys and I got a response of about a hundred parents of mainly children parents of children with autism. And they kept on coming back with saying the services we're getting they're, they're doing what they can for my child, but I kind of want the general public to know a bit more. And that was kind of the answer to the question that I wanted. So I was doing a qualitative analysis one day in June and the four adjectives that kind of kept on popping up were people wanting people to accept their child, respect their child, empathise with their child and understand their child. And that anagram spells are you. So are you being accepting, respectful, empathetic and understanding to the neurodiverse individual in front of you? And you touched on your ADHD then. So Mm -hmm. when did that diagnosis come about? 14. Yeah, so I was really in a really bad place with my anxiety and a psychologist spoke to me for five minutes and was like, do you have ADHD and it's in my family? So I was kind of like, I kind of thought for a few years that was kind of more in my head than the dyslexia part. So, yeah. And it's so interesting that your project is looking at, is it better to know or not know? Because how do you personally feel? And the reason I asked you that is because sometimes it's like a a label and mm-hmm. we're breaking down all the taboos of the neurodiverse now. But you don't want to feel like you can't do anything. You see, I kind of, through Teen Turn, Teen Turn has really kind of instilled in me the confidence that was kind of absent for a few years. So... I presented up on Microsoft and I've done other things with Teen Turn. So all of their support has kind of made me feel I can interview people as well. So I interviewed Ken Kilbride of ADHD Ireland and we had a chat about is it better to not or not to know or not to know. And he was like, a diagnosis is a flag post, not a label. And like pointing you in the right direction of treatments. And I really agree with that as I want to be an OT when I'm older. So I really think it's beneficial to have the diagnosis because why would you not want your life to be easier? Yeah, and why wouldn't you want to have a better understanding of yourself and how you work? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's clear now to anybody who can hear you talk that this isn't about intelligence. This isn't about being smart or not smart. This is just about how your brain works. Exactly. 
Um, and your internship, tell us a little bit about that. Um, so Teen Turn, they're absolutely phenomenal. Um, so Izzelt Manigan and Margaret Malone have just been absolutely amazing. And I was on holidays visiting my granny over in America and I got an email from Margaret and she was like, Lauren, there's this opportunity to do, they call it a teen turnship in Dell and would you like to partake in it? And I kind of was a bit hesitant at first, but my mom was like, come on, Lauren, like, it's not gonna like it's two weeks and it's the first two weeks of August. You'll be grand before you go back to school, cause as I'm in sixth year. So, I did the internship and the lady that was kind of in charge of it with us, her name was Naomi. Naomi Happen and Naomi has kind of been. She really believed in the project from the start, and she's kind of put me in contact with the Dell managers and. Izzet and Margaret have still been like helping me on the sidelines as well. So Naomi got me in contact with her boss, Jer, and then her boss, Bob. And then I interviewed them and they're going to do a soft launch with their ERGs of my Are You Campaign and Dell. Well, it's clear to see you're going to rule the world <laughs> if you get the other side of the leaving cert. I mean, it's just incredible what you have achieved so far. And you're even really comfortable in this setup, you know, talking and being interviewed and... I'm super impressed. I want to bring in Darina Kennedy. Um, Darina, you are one of the co-founders of the National Neurodiversity Charity and you also work at Google. And I want to start before I get into the, the charity with the tech companies, because we are really starting to headhunt people who are neurodiverse and see it as a plus rather than anything else. We're starting to look at the qualities that come with somebody who is neurodiverse and it's a very different mindset. Yeah, and like it's great to be here um, and what an impressive uh, lady to follow. Um, but I think just listening to or speak there, you are not surprised to hear that being different in the way you think and approach things is such a competitive advantage and backed up by, you know, the latest Harvard business study, which is saying that companies that don't see um, different thinking as an advantage are going to be losing out um, on top talent. So, you know, I've worked in Google for 13 years. Um, I'm one of the co-founders of Neurodiversity Ireland, which is around celebrating, you know, different thinking and different brains, because we know that diversity in all walks of life brings fantastic innovation, problem solving and creativity. So without that, um, you know, you're just going to have mainstream same thoughts, but also you're missing out on representing you know, the full population. So we know that when you're an employer, you need a diverse workforce to make sure that A, you're building products that service the, the full population, but also the more um, people you have that are approaching things in different ways, the more efficient you're being as a workforce yourself. Yeah, I mean, I interviewed somebody recently with autism and, you know, she was saying a lot of companies, that attention to detail, that hyper focus. And I just think that's a much more positive way for us to be speaking about autism. And that's just one of the neurodiverse spectrums. Exactly. I mean, the the thing is um, with n being neurodivergent, um, I'm dyslexic, um, similar to yourself. And I found that what it brings to my workplace is a really innovative way of thinking. I approach problems differently to my colleagues. It doesn't mean better. It's just different. And having lots of different ways to approach things or having someone who can come in with a different lens is a fantastic thing. 
um, you know, or, you know, my daughter's autistic and, you know, there's a beautiful way of that she thinks about things and it's so clever and it's so different to the way I would think about something. Um, and, you know, in a workforce or in the corporate world, like we know that people that can go very deep and that have high focus and that are innovative or creative, you know, th- those are the future leaders. I mean, 35% of entrepreneurs, you know, are dyslexic. It's even higher when you look at all the neurodivergent profiles out there. So the reality is, is the stigma is coming from fear and it's the fear of the unknown because people aren't educated or aware enough that actually being different and thinking differently is a very good thing. What isn't a good thing is when our education systems or our workplaces aren't set up for that difference and they have too inflexible an approach to how they do performance management in interviewing um, and building culture. So, you know, really the RU campaign is just fantastic because if we have acceptance, empathy, respect and understanding, then everyone can thrive and be set up for success. It comes from people being brave enough to ask the questions on how they can understand better to support people. And Google has been voted one of the top companies for neurodivergence. Is that down to you, Darina? <laughs> I wish I could take credit for that. Um, it's a fantastic place to work. I mean, I think that when I, you know, went to Google, even though I had done my Leaving Cert and my college um, courses with a scribe, I still wasn't confident enough to be honest about my diagnosis of dyslexia when I joined. So I hid it for a long time. And it was only because I had, you know, a great manager, Senator Whitney, and I had a lot of supportive colleagues that really were like, you know, this is not something that you should be trying to hide. We can support you. Um, and actually, we really see the value you bring that I then moved into more of a spokesperson role. I'm in the Disability Alliance, ERG and Google. And, you know, uh, currently it's ADI Month, Accessibility um, Month. And we're trying to, you know, really drive the message of the accommodations that workplaces can bring to help people having honest conversations with your manager about what you need. These are the things that managers can put on the table to really have an, a safe space to work and have that high level of psych safety so that people can be their full selves at work, but also make sure you know how to get the best out of them at the workplace. And why did you co-found Neurodiversity Ireland? Um, I think probably when um, my uh, my daughter was diagnosed um autistic that, you know, I really saw through her eyes the treatment, I guess, I didn't want her to have that I had had at an early age when I was younger, where, you know, there just wasn't an understanding of what being dyslexic meant. Um, and, you know, there was a very realistic fact that I wasn't going to get a leaving. I wasn't going to go to college and I wasn't going to get a job. And there's nothing wrong with those things not happening if that's not your path. But it was chosen for me. They, I was written off. And um, it was only for a fantastic teacher, you know, Miss Duffy, who really believed in me and said, you know, there's all these accommodations for you. You have a diagnosis. I don't know why you haven't received them before in your previous schools that I actually ended up getting these doors open for me. And and I just straight away knew with her, with a lot, with these other great parents that have co-founded it with me, that we wanted a better community for our children to grow up in, a community that understood them, accepted them, gave them empathy and respect. And so we, when we launched the charity for First, it was just within Sandymount to make our community really, you know, friendly, neurodiverse friendly, we call it. But then the, the momentum and the outcry from the rest of Ireland of wanting that in their own community was huge. So 
we decided, okay, we're going to make this something we'll do, you know, nationwide. And then obviously the there was other things that cropped up, which was there was such a lack of support from the HSE, the early intervention that never came, the waiting lists that are two to three years long. So we started fundraising to, you know, we want to do our own sensory centre where we're going to provide these great services. We already have one in Black Rock at the moment that um, we're running occupational therapy camps that are just fantastic. You know, we've had over hundreds of children through over the summer because parents aren't getting any respite themselves. They We can't get our kids into traditional camps. They're not set up for them. People aren't trained to have, give them a nice time. But we're providing that now. Um, and, and that's really the crux of why we did it, because we want you know a better future for them, a future that they deserve. Lauren, tell me about your experience of school then. Obviously, you're facing your leaving cert. How have you found it? Um, I've had an amazing mum and I've had an amazing kind of support system in school. I've had access to grinds to kind of help me have one-on-one time with teachers, which has been very useful. Medication is really helpful for me. I know it doesn't work for some people, but two years ago when I started it, after I got my diagnosis of ADHD, it transformed my education. Like in second year, I wasn't doing very well in school. Like I was getting 50s, 60s, and now I'm getting 70s and 80s because of the support from my teachers. And I picked subjects that, I have such a keen interest in and I can hyper-focus in. Whiteboards are my best friend. I absolutely love a good whiteboard. Whiteboard and study clicks are kind of how I'm managing the studying part. But other aspects of school life is having such a supportive mum who is a teacher as well and who has been for over 20 years. So it's I'm very lucky and very grateful for my mum. And Lauren, you know, I always think at 18, we don't have to know what we want to do for the rest of our life. And I've already put pressure on your shoulders that you're going to go and rule the world. But do you have any idea what you want to do the other side? Um, I'm hoping to do something that will help people who are like me. So I'm going to like the college open days in a few weeks. So I'm hoping in the end to do something like dietetics or occupational therapy has kind of been on the forefront of my mind for the last few years. But Maybe over the next four years, I'd love to do something in science and kind of look into how my brain works and how different people who are neurodiverse brain, brains work in my family. But in the end, I'd love to just be helping people who are neurodiverse, if that's occupational therapy or dietetics. Yeah, well, I've no doubt you'll be successful in whatever it is you do. You're a very special girl. You're kind of glowing over there. Thank you. I love it. A real sparky individual. Um, and I wish you all the best Thank with you your very, exams very and everything. Um, if people want to find out more, they can go to neurodiversityireland.com and keep your eyes out for Lauren Rafferty and her apps and whatever else she does. So to Lauren Rafferty and to Darina Kennedy, thank you so, so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aoife Breen and to Hugo De Silva Scott who was on sound and thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking on News Talk.